Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cupper. I'm John Perry. And today on Review the Future, we are discussing Cory Doctorow's novel, Walk Away. And uh, this is a novel that takes place in a near future world where the kind of inequality we have today has gotten even worse and mm. the rich have become even more ridiculously wealthy. Uh, and largely as a result of that, it seems like the culture has, or society has split into two different cultures. One which we'd call the default culture, which are people that still live under the old ways of capitalism. Right. It's like, a, by the, it's like a hyper capitalism kind of. Exactly. Ruled over by the hyper rich, which are called the Zada rich in this world. <laughs> right. Uh, so that's the default culture. Mm -hmm. And then there's this increasingly growing uh, walkaway movement, uh, which are people that colonize these sort of, you know, destroyed wastelands that exist partially, I suppose, as a result of climate change or mm -hmm. other ecological disasters, sort of recolonize them and set up these, you know, communes uh, enabled by the technology of the day. Right. And the main technology in the book, uh, for the first half anyway, is like pervasive, high quality fabrication technology, like uh, 3D printers, wet printers, things that can make food, things that can make buildings. Um, kind of, it's like an uh, automated vision of uh, a uh, post-scarcity world. Exactly. So uh, most of the walkaway culture that we see, you know, is aggressively non-hierarchical, right? Like no one is in charge. Right. Uh, everyone gets exactly whatever it is they need. Uh, everything is shared. Um, and this is all possible because we have this world of abundance that's created by an intense level of automation that can, you know, and the, it involves sort of going out into the wasteland and, and scavenging raw materials that can then be fed into all these different types of printers that are then used to create the stuff of life that you need. Right. And other people are like programmers who are programming things, routines for the printers to do and designs and stuff like that. But everyone does it voluntarily. It's kind of um, a, a very utopian. Uh, they, they keep calling it the first days of a better nation. That's their like propaganda slogan inside the walkaway movement. And they basically are... Um, trying to figure out a way to live in this um, abundant future uh, that doesn't involve um, property or hierarchy. Those are like the main things that they're trying to avoid. So they don't own anything and they don't uh, like work for anyone or have any kind of meritocracy. In fact, there's like a kind of philosophical debate throughout the book about how much meritocracy is okay. And the main characters basically think none. <laughs> Their position is... You don't even want a leaderboard showing how many commits people have, because even that level of meritocracy incentivizes all kinds of bad acting and, and gamesmanship and stuff like that. Yeah, it seems like the novel more or less agrees with that perspective. I mean, we hear we hear both points of view, mm -hmm. so it's it's problematized a little bit. But mm -hmm. I mean, most of the characters that we're close to in this world, uh, yeah, like are concerned about the kind of like game playing and stats fiddling and you know perverse incentives that that show up like once you start uh you know giving having metrics right the track like who's doing the most work right the theory being that that you know causes people to be extrinsically motivated by you know chasing these rewards 
as opposed to like the deeper, more uh, intrinsic motivation of, of you know, uh, doing something for for mastery's sake, or or uh, or just to help uh, the the larger goals of the group, right? Or to feel useful, or whatever. Right, right. Yeah, that's. And, sorry, go ahead. Well, we're focusing on the world here, so I think we should just say that like there is, of course, characters and a plot here. Mm-hmm. But uh, as with many uh, Cory Doctorow uh, pieces of writing, yeah, uh, the focus here feels really on ideas. Yeah, um, and. And there's a long tradition of this in sci-fi, obviously. Um, so that's kind of where we're going to focus our attention. I mean, we'll, I'm sure we'll end up talking about the characters and plot a little bit. Um, but it's it's not what's most interesting to, to us about this story. Yeah, and I wouldn't say this is a plot-driven novel. So even if we do ruin it for you a little, I don't think you're missing that much. What's interesting about the book is the philosophical discussions, basically, that these different characters have. And one thing that Doctor is good at is coming up with characters who they may not feel like 100% real people all the time, but they have enough of a background and a position that it makes sense why they believe what they believe. And then he kind of uses them as philosophical sock puppets to discuss um, things that I think we're very interested in and have discussed here on the podcast. I mean, there's a a big discussion of, um, you know, work and worth and what you can do uh, in a in a non-capitalist structure to have work and worth and there's also um more speculative discussions that come later in the book which i don't know we can get to later if you want but uh uh, i feel like uh, yeah that is the most interesting part of it is the sort of philosophies that are explored um about what is ethical and what is uh preferable in setting up a society and in um sort of advanced ai stuff as well it's also, I think this qualifies as a, as a utopian novel for the most part. I mean, it's not like <laughs> there isn't bad things happening. Um, That's I mean, funny. again, there's, there's tremendous like inequality and uh, there's like horrible things that happen. I mean, the, uh, the yeah. super rich are essentially at war with the walkaways and chase yeah. them around and, and bomb them out of their various homes, which they then walk away from, which is one of the two meanings of the word walk away. Right. Uh, so, I mean, there, there's there's definitely conflict and drama, but I mean, by the end of it, you feel like the walk away way of life is winning and yes. capitalism is crumbling. And yeah, the environment's kind of a disaster, but the sense is that, you know, there is a better way that's actually going to make it. At least that's the sort of hopeful note I took from the book. Yeah, yeah. It does seem like it's an origin story for um, a utopia, but the action of the book almost feels like a war between a utopia and a dystopia, right? It's like there's this hyper-capitalist treadmill society where everybody's a temp their whole life except for the 0.01% who run everything. Um, And then there's this utopian walkaway community that the second starts to get, you know, big and interesting and really make some breakthroughs, uh, gets targeted and we are sort of treated to the beginning of a big war. Uh, and then, uh, in the, in the epilogue of the book, we finally kind of find out that that war did more to decimate the rich than it did to hurt the poor and that the, the walkaways are like you say, uh, on the rise. Um, And yeah, I think it is a kind of, it's almost like trying to figure out, well, if capitalism were to end because of technological forces, like if we were to come to a time when um, there just wasn't enough scarcity to uh, justify the system of, uh, you know, threatening to starve people if they don't work, then um, how would that go down? Like, it wouldn't go down without a fight, right? So I think that it's a realistic prediction in the sense that 
Uh, this is, um, if it were to go this way, I think there would be a last gasp of violence and pain before, uh, before the rich gave up the privileges that they had become so used to. I think that makes sense. And I think if you have these kind of technologies that made a full walk away possible, I mean, you can kind of do this now, right? I mean, it's not like nobody, you can't know, print your own up- food, but you can certainly, uh, do some kind of combination of going back to the land and using technology to be less reliant on society it's not you can you can do a version of this yeah. right yeah. uh but it's yeah it's not nearly as it's made a lot easier by the technologies they have to just print up all the clothing they want you know yeah uh and it just and like to fabricate buildings in what seems to be like a very short amount of time yeah and to like uh, capture carbon out of the air and then use that to make things and stuff like that i mean that's uh that's a level of uh, facility with material goods that we just don't have, you know, in our society. But it's a reasonable prediction for the future, I think. Well, and the term like walk away it makes sense in the context of like tremendous abundance, right? Like it seems like the underlying argument is, right, if there's plenty of everything and you come to take my thing, right, right am I going to fight you for it or am I just going to walk away and get the other thing that's down the street, right? Right. Uh, if, if there's plenty of things around, I don't need to fight for just one. Uh, so that's certainly not true today. I mean, if you did set up a little walkaway community and people came to kick you off, I mean, it's not like you just easily move on to another place. But that's kind of the point they seem to be at, or at least that's the that's the intended goal of the, of the walkaway culture. And, and we, we see that dramatized pretty dramatically in, in one scene mm-hmm. where... That, you know, one of these like walkaway communes has built this, you know, uh, in like it's it's more than an inn, though. I mean, they it's call a place it the where B&B, live. but it's like kind of a yeah, it's kind of like a whole compound where people live and make things and work together in this uh, under this philosophy. So you don't like have a room, you find a place to sleep at night and stuff like that. Right. And another opposing group, uh, you know, shows up and basically takes over aggressively and yeah. instead of fighting for it. Uh, the leader of the walkaways is basically like, no, that's fine. You can have it. We're just going to start a new, better in and like improve upon the design that we had in the past. Right. Uh, right. And some people think that's kind of crazy, but more or less that plan actually works in the context of this technology. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, the woman who walks away, uh, who leads the, the, she was sort of leading the place before she's not an official leader, but people respect her because she does the most work. And these, uh, meritocrats who, who take over her place, they say, Hey, you have a lifetime pass here. You've done so much work. We believe in, in people who do work. And she defeats their whole meritocratic idea by just saying, well, I don't want that. You know, I only want it if it's free for everyone. And so then they go and build this new bigger one. And I think that's the philosophical position of the novel right there. I mean, I I like that sequence because it shows you um, that in a world of abundance, there is actually an alternative to violence and fighting um, that maybe didn't exist before. Maybe it was just two zero sum of a world before. uh, And if somebody came to your land and said, you know, get, you had no choice but to fight. But now you do have a choice. You can just walk away and start again, and soon enough you'll have um, something better. Uh, well, I like that because, you know, in a, as we talked about, in a world of abundance, there's still some scarcities that, that are important. I mean, and one of those is just 
you know, positional goods and things, you know, if people just want to have more than someone else, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's something they may not stop wanting just because there's plenty around, right? I mean, we can already see that that's the case today. Sure. So in a world of abundance, you're not going to stop people from trying to take stuff from their neighbors. It's just that if you can kind of, uh, you know, be the bigger person and walk away and there's enough stuff for you to be able to do that and you're not too, too put out by that, then that's kind of like solves that problem. Yeah. Uh, uh, of the fact that some people are still trying to take stuff from others. Yeah. It's uh, like digitally enhanced Buddhism a little bit, right? It's like you can stop desiring the things because they're easy to replace, not because you've reached some enlightenment state of your mind or something, but uh, just because, uh, you know, they're so easy to replace so you can more easily let go of them than, uh, you know, than we're used to. You know, a related philosophical point, too, is... Uh, which I think is one of another really core theme of this is they, they talk about sort of a version of, you know, the classic like game theory problem, the, the prisoner's dilemma, right. About right. trying to cooperate. Um, although the, the version that they give in the story that I feel like is most relevant is uh, they call it the covered dish problem. Do you remember this? Right, right. Trying to turn people into covered dish people. And what they mean by that is uh, if there's a problem, do you come to your neighbor's house with a shotgun or with a covered dish of food? <laughs> Right. And the theory is that what you want are as many covered dish people as possible who are going to commit to option A, the covered dish, no matter what. Right. right. And basically, you just decide to do that no matter what. And yeah, maybe some of the time you walk over with the covered dish to your neighbor's house and you get shot. Uh, I, and obviously, that's terrible. But a lot of other times you walk over and your neighbor has the covered dish. So that's great. And mm -hmm. then you just have a, have a party. Uh, maybe sometimes you walk over and your neighbor pulls a shotgun on you, but it's only because they were worried about you. And once they see you have a covered dish, they put the shotgun away. Right. Right. That's it's like just the, sort of yeah, that's the big turn in the story is that. Yeah. And that's really interesting because um, it's a version of Prisoner's Dilemma where um, in this version, uh, you get a little bit of information about what your neighbor's doing because you can see the covered dish or whatever. So you slowly approach each other. It's exactly. not like you lock in your choices simultaneously. Right. Like so you've locked problem. in your choice sort of earlier, but then you get some information about whether you want to shoot <laughs> if you're carrying the gun. Um, and, uh, because of that, it's, uh, a little easier to cooperate in this version than in the classic version where you have no information. Um, but obviously everyone cooperating is the optimal outcome in either case. So anything that you can do to make people more that kind of person who will commit to cooperating, it makes the whole world better because at least some of the time you change a mind and you take somebody who has a, a shotgun and you get them to put it down. And yeah, this actually happens quite literally at the climax of the book. I mean, th there's people like soldiers that are literally putting their guns down in war. Yes. Uh, which is probably the most utopian part of the book. I mean, and that's not unheard of behavior. That certainly mm -hmm. has happened in the past. Uh, although it's, they seem to be implying that that's happening on like a very large scale by the end of the book. But I think that also has to do with just, you know, the super rich and the capitalist structure kind of losing a lot of credibility. Right. Uh, and they have some kind of internet enhanced technique of uh, getting family members of these soldiers to like um, call out to them from walkaways throughout the world. Right. So it's like they're, they're manipulating the soldiers emotionally to try to show them that they're on the wrong side. And it starts to work basically uh, at a key moment. You know, that's something that's hinted at in the story, uh, but it isn't fully played out actually. Right. 
is this idea of this deep manipulation of social groups. Yeah. I mean, there's they use this phrase a lot, walking your social graph or whatever. And of course, this resonates with like things today where we're thinking a lot about digital persuasion and botnets and, you know, things like, you know, Facebook leaking your privacy and what someone might be able to do with that, right, to, to spread disinformation. And that's hinted at in this book. And it's, you know, obviously, if you take the world of this book seriously, this is a power that the Zada rich would have in spades, right? To be able to, you know, infiltrate groups and manipulate them. And we know, in fact, that they have that because they're constantly spying. Um, yeah. And, and, and they, are to know able, uh, they are able to capture basically anyone at will. I mean, two characters get captured at different times by uh, emissaries of the default world. And it seems impossible that they would be able to do that without tremendous surveillance and such right but but i was surprised that they didn't do more intentional disinformation spreading right like there was a twist that i thought was coming that didn't come mm. uh and this is you know uh without getting too wrapped up and trying to explain the plot um there uh when uh one of the characters uh limpopo like sort of comes back as an emulated mind which is a whole another technology we'll, we'll get to in a second yeah yeah I thought that she was going to come back as like sort of a manipulator to like sow distrust uh, in the group. I thought that they were even hinting that that was the case, but that never, there was never any, if there was any plots like that working in the background, then the story, my point is the story never really brought those out. They kind of discussed, one of the characters definitely discussed like how you have to counter that by just kind of just trusting your buddies no matter what. And not letting, you know, paranoia creep in. Right. Because uh, that's what really destroys groups. But it does seem like that that is a weapon that the actual ultra-rich would have and would use aggressively that seems like it's held back here. And I'm not sure why. Yeah, there, the implication seems like that's a problem with other groups in Walkaway. But for some reason, like our group of, of close friends that we have are, are all pure and none of them can be turned. Although, yeah, there's a really good opportunity in the story for Limpopo in particular to get turned because she gets captured and uh, and then ultimately imprisoned for 14 years. Um, and, Where they, and they scan her in prison. And they scan right? her. Right. So they have copies of her and um, they are threatening to... To, to torture them. So let's let's just do this now because we're talking about it already. Uh, so the big sort of technological change that happens in the book and is dramatized, we are following the characters, is some scientists in Walkaway about halfway through the book uh, manage to scan a human brain and create the first functional emulated brain in this world. So uh, like Robin Hansen's idea of M's, it's that's the style of AI that's in this book. There's no uh, human level AGI in the book. Um, but there are these, um, M's that have the personality of the person who the scan was made from. The scans are non-destructive. And the first person who's brought up is brought up because her, her flesh body died, uh, after the scan in an attack, but it is possible to, uh, bring up, um, uh, clones as well. So that also happens in the story is that, uh, um, accidentally somebody gets cloned because they don't know that she's still alive basically. Um, uh, and the book gets into, um, a lot of interesting philosophical discussions of, uh, emulated minds and identity and, you know, what it's like when you feel like me, but you know, there's another me out there or, you know, you're not the real one or, you know, that your body is dead. Um, they talk about sort of winnowing down the, 
possibility envelope of uh you know, uh, various tweaks they can make to the mind to make it okay with being a sim, as which which is what they call it. They use uh, the same term uh, David Marusek uses for these things, uh, sims. And uh, it's it's an interesting section of the book where they really kind of go through what the development process would be like to try to take somebody who, uh, despite being a scientist who was interested in immortality and wanting to have the scan done, still, you know, wakes up inside a box and has an existential crisis the first few thousand times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's talk about like how it, where it comes from, right? So sure. one thing that's interesting is that, uh, as far as we can tell, the sort of em- emulated brain technology uh, first appears or first like is achieved inside the walkaway culture, which already is an interesting kind of take on this. Because the way things have shifted, so many like high-level scientists have walked away, and actually, there's a walkaway U, a walkaway university that a lot of them have like congregated in. That actually, major scientific developments are happening in this kind of like op- open-source alternate world, right? Right. Uh, ra- rather than where you first like would expect it to happen, or at least certainly like based on based on today's world, right, where you'd expect this to happen inside the Pentagon or be some like highly government funded project right somewhere or at the Um, most like maybe uh at a at a large private company like a google but exactly or you don't expect it to be at uh uh at the university of uh uh, urbana champagne champagne or whatever in their uh you know open source software institute which is sort of like the closest analog to this in our real world yeah we don't exactly have this yeah i mean it's it's a it's imagine that but if all of the smartest scientists were working there in the whole world because they had grown so disgusted with the uh, system that they had previously been serving and maybe they were also being censored or something in their research. Um, And of course they're a little bit depicted as uh, zealots because these are people who want to, you know, develop immortality. So I think character wise they should be zealots. I mean, that makes sense. It's a pretty esoteric thing to be super into. Sure, and it makes sense that the first person who gets scanned is one of the researchers, like frontline main researchers working on the project, mm-hmm. uh, who also is sort of like you mentioned a second ago. Uh, it's not an easy thing to get these things running because they usually, you know, have an existential crisis. You know, yeah. like some amount of time after they're booted up. Uh, but uh, as they're booting up this researcher, the first emulated mind she's able to sort of help the process as it's happening, mm-hmm. right? She's like able to, as herself being booted up, you know, in the times before she has her crisis, I guess she's able to like contribute um, some information to talk to people to maybe like make some suggestions about tweaking some parameters to kind of guide the process from the inside, which I thought that was pretty interesting, actually. Yeah, that's right. And then there's also an element where one of the other characters has developed some math that lets them sort of branch out and do a lot of look aheads where they can kind of figure out if she's going to freak out in the next couple of seconds or minutes or however long they don't, they're not that specific about it, but in the, the next amount of time, if she's about to freak out, if X or Y or Z happens and it helps them to modulate, um, her parameters and modulate what they tell her and, and all the things that they need to do in order to uh, bring up a stable, um, mind in, in this simulated environment. Well, the way they're able to get her to not have a crisis is they actually have to modulate her personality. I mean, this is treated very abstractly, right? Yeah. But they, they, you know, somehow contain her emotions, her feelings, 
inside of some smaller acceptable range right. that preserves you know most of her personality but strongly implies that the resulting emulated brain is not really an exact copy it's some like subset of that personality that could handle not having a body yeah uh, without freaking out and i think this you know i want to highlight how this is pretty different from the robin hansen like portrayal in the age of m right okay. which makes certain assumptions in that book right i mean one of the assumptions in that book i believe is that you know, it's pretty much a straight copy and it's not super easy to tweak these things, at least initially. That that would technology would come later. Right. Um, and this kind of is saying they're they're tweaking right away. I don't know exactly what parameters they're tweaking. Right. But that doesn't sound like the easiest thing in the world, right? I mean, there's no the brain doesn't have like natural sliders for different types of, you know, personality, right? Well, uh, I mean the brain's natural sliders are things like um, neurotransmitters and stuff, right? Like dopamine and serotonin, like the kinds sure, of things okay. that um, modern day uh, psychotropic drugs work on. You know, um, like if you're anti-depression drugs, they are serotonin reuptake inhibitors, right? Or something like that. So I feel like they would have some sliders, but those sliders might be awfully crude. Um, but maybe honestly, the way to make a a human scientist uh, okay with being a simulation is basically just to give them a nice dose of digital Xanax. You know what I mean? I, I, I actually kind of, I liked, I liked how abstract it was because it didn't get into, they just keep talking about their infographics. Like there's just like a bunch of charts basically. And they're sort of messing with the levels on these charts, but you don't know what any of the charts mean. And I think that's a good way to hand wave past it and say like, well, they've developed some, knowledge of the brain in the next, you know, 40 years from now or 50 years or however long it is. And, um, and they're using that knowledge in, in the simulation. I kind of, you know, I'm willing to go with that. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I am too. Although I think, you know, another way you could see this going that seems a little bit maybe more practical is if you scan a hundred people and the first one has an existential crisis, you like try the next one, right? I mean, you yeah. keep going until you find the person that's naturally well suited to not having an existential crisis. And then that's the person you make thousands and thousands of copies of, right? That's right. sort of the, the Hanson take on this, right? Right. right. Um, and, and in a, a voluntary world where this was developed in like a computer lab um, by a company, I would expect that to be what happens because there's something um, potentially unethical about, you know, booting up a consciousness only to suffer and kill it um, thousands of times. Uh, but the book treats it in a kind of flip way, right? Like the because it's, I think, a scientist who had thought through this before she's subjected to it. When she realizes it's uh, not her first time being booted up, she just goes, "Oh, am I Groundhog Daying?" You know, she just like she has a frame of reference for what that is, and it doesn't terrify her the way that that normally terrifies. Um, a character who has it happen to them in well, science fiction, right? I mean, it does terrify her because she freaks out and has a crisis, but she's it's strongly implied that she's consented to this fully, right, beforehand. Right. Uh, I right. mean, she, she's... Like she doesn't have the crisis the specifically project. because of the fact that she's being rebooted, though. She has the crisis because she doesn't have a body and she's dead and all of that stuff, right? It's like... It's, it, it doesn't seem like the Groundhog Daying itself is the cause of her crisis. She just realizes, oh, this is going to be something that's going to happen to me uh, now that I'm a sim. You know, it wasn't super clear to me what actually causes the crisis. Got it. Right? I mean, okay. it could Maybe be, it's not it's, clear. I just, I just well, it could it be any of those things, right? right. I mean, yeah. uh, there, there's, there'd be a lot of very upsetting things. I mean, the other thing is that uh, they don't go into too much detail, you know, what the interface of being, like, they, like they, they're being booted up and they don't have a body, right? right? So, but they're not simulating a body as far as I can tell. They're not being 
brought into a virtual space. Right. They're just like in a computer with like cameras looking out. Right. Uh, and they have multiple cameras. And then uh, later we get a hint that they have some kind of, you know, repurposed interface where they can move a cursor. Yes. That's, uh, you know, based upon, you know, you know, previous, uh, you know, interfaces that have been used by like walk-in patients, you know, that have like lost control of their bodies. Right. Um, so I think that I liked seeing that window into that interface, but I, I, I'm not clear why there wasn't any attempt to, you know, give them like a digital world to be in. Right. right. Well, I, in the context of the story, I do remember, I mean, no one says this specifically, but I do remember that, uh, because they're like on the run when they're instantiating these characters, they're kind of like stealing compute cycles to run them. So I would mm-hmm. imagine that a simulation would be compute heavy. Um, and so it doesn't make sense to me why at the end of the story, um, in the epilogue, which we can get to in more detail later, uh, it appears to be that appears to be in the real world and not in a super high quality simulation. Cause that seemed like where they were headed. And there's even that thing. Do you remember this about halfway through the book? They're talking to somebody, a minor character, and they say that they want to scan all the walkaways into a computer and shoot it into orbit. Right. Isn't that like, uh, there, there's some talk of out? going to space. Yeah. Uh, and that made me think that the end of this was going to be, you know, a paradise contained inside an orbiting computer. Like that, th- that made me think that that's where the end of the book was going to go. And then it didn't go there. And I was surprised and a little disappointed. I mean, the computation required for these things doesn't even seem to shrink very rapidly. Right. Because when they first come online, yeah, it's pretty hard to run even one of these things. Right. And like you said, they're stealing cycles to do it or borrowing them. Right. They're in the uh, middle of like basically a war with a technologically superior enemy. So they're really, you know, they're in a bunker, basically. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but then there's 14, there's like a 14 year jump, right? And on the other side of that 14 year jump, we don't have an explosion of the M population. And it's still implied that you have to kind of like carry, they're calling it a cluster, but like you have to like, like one, like they have one character basically carrying an emulated person on, on them, which like consists of like a bunch of like computer devices strapped to them in order to run the emulated mind. Right. Right. So it's still, it's not as small as a cell phone. It's bigger than a laptop. It's, uh, it's it's like like a backpack sized, uh, server farm you know i think is like kind of the concept right like yeah as much power as today's server farm in like a backpack or something like that exactly so after 14 years we've gone from like using all the computing power in a in a bunker in wartime to basically a backpack which is progress right Right. but we never like see it get to the point again that that we we think it might get to really quickly and it all depends on on many many factors that are hard to predict but uh, certainly like in the, in the Hansen book, he predicts like this huge population explosion of emulated minds happening, you know, actually, you know, I don't know how many years he puts on that, rec- like before that happens. Right. Right. He predicts that the whole MRM might be very short. I think I don't remember the exact number of years, but I think the whole right. MRM might be like two decades or something in, in real time. But I guess one of the variables is, you know, where... I mean, there's a lot of variables. One, of course, is, you know, how much computing power does it even take to run a mind, period, mm-hmm. right? 
And then the second is when the scanning technology and simulation technology become good enough, how far along is the, the, the computing power, right? It's like if, if you, because you could have surplus computing power once we get to emulated minds, and then it's like overnight you have this huge population of beings. Right. All of a sudden. Uh, or you could just be barely scraping up against the boundaries of what's possible computing-wise, which is closer to what I think we're seeing in this in Walkaway. There is right? some uh, proliferation, though, because um, DIS, the first uh, one of these emulated minds, uh, instances of her get spun up by basically every Walkaway community all around the world. So, it's sort of middling. Yeah, it's like... Uh, so that's, uh, I, you know, that's somewhat explosive. That's, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 100 disses. It's not millions of disses. Um, it's not like runnable on consumer hardware. It's no. like runnable on, you know, some sort of, you know, professional grade supercomputer right. hardware, it sounds right, like. Maybe. Right, right. And also, uh, they do mention at one point that her uh, she speeds herself up. So they talk about her running at 20x speed or something like that. So that is possible if you have the computing power, um, which is something else that Hanson talks about. You know, you could clock them at different rates to um, match their computing power to their uh, economic utility, is how he puts it. But since this sure. is a post-scarcity world, they're not worried about the economic utility. They're worried about, you know, solving this problem quickly because it has an, there's an emotional reason to solve it or something. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's an interesting approach, I think, to the emulated brain concept. And I think it, it, I think a lot of the changes that doctor makes from Hansen's predictions have to do with the world that it's happening in more than fundamental ideas about the technology. Um, like I think if the Zadas had succeeded in doing uh, brain emulation, it might've gone down exactly the way Hansen describes. Well, they're, yeah, they're already sort of in this like post work, uh, utopia. Right. I mean, obviously people are doing jobs or at least there's like jobs that are, I guess, the, I mean, the, the implication is the job, there's not enough jobs being created in the default world, right? right. Yeah. And you have people, stories of people being uh retirement age and they've only ever been a temp. So the idea is that jobs are being like kind of created and destroyed at a very fast rate. And there's not enough, I think, to go around. So there's like a techno, there's definitely like a technological unemployment problem. Although you can solve that by just becoming a walk away and basically working on what you are interested in, which is something we've talked about going way back in the, the podcast history. Yeah. Right? So, like, we're already sort of in that world at the beginning of the story when the M's arrive. So then the M's are not, you know, whereas I think in the Hanson world, it's like, it's still a regular economy. There's been zero technological employment. The economy's marched on pretty much the way that it has always marched on. And then when you inject all of a sudden this like infinite resource, well, not quite infinite, but this very powerful resource of, of cheap human labor, then like pretty much like over a very short amount of time, all of the humans become unemployed, right? Because at that point it becomes way cheaper, you know, to have like one really great worker scanned and copy them, you know, uh, thousands of times to do all your labor for you. Right. So, I, I, yeah, I think it has to do with, like, yeah, the, the shape of society and the predictions about uh, employment, like, leading up to the, the, the M achievement as far as, like, how, how it plays out. Right, right, yeah. So this is a world of extreme unemployment and uh, environmental degradation uh, as if, uh, you know, no changes had been made for climate change and uh, the rich had just been continued to 
just uh, accumulate more and more basically from now until the start of the book. Uh, so that may or may not happen, but I think if you take those as uh, givens, then it, it makes a certain amount of sense that it might go down this way where, um, you know, they are, uh, they make this breakthrough out in the walkaway world and then it's very threatening to the default, um, way of life. So it becomes a big conflict between them. Yeah. I think the role it plays in the story is like, this is sort of, I mean, the last thing to be made abundant, right? Like, like now we can not just print food and clothing and houses, uh, we can print brains and now we can not just, you know, walk away from our homes. We can walk away from our bodies. Right. I mean, that's right. Thematically the role this plays. It's like, right. The, and and that's the, why I thought the satellite thing was going to be the end. Cause it's like, yeah, you can walk away from the earth, right? Why are we fighting over the earth when we don't need it? We can all live in a, in a paradise heaven built in a satellite, uh, server farm. Right. And then, that to, that's why that felt to me like that's where the book was going, is it seemed like it's like they just keep finding more and more technologically enabled ways of walking away from the old fights and the old um, limits. And then uh, it was surprising to me when uh, when that wasn't where the book went. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they they even they, they spent a fair amount of time talking about that and then they didn't they didn't go there, yeah. which is I also was a little bit surprised by that. I'm, I mean, I, I yeah. Um, Let's talk about climate change, right? Because I mean, obviously, that's like a huge, like I don't think though I don't know if those words are even said. No, they I are. Mean, maybe there's they like are once uh, or twice, right? Yeah, a couple of times. There's one point when they're they're flying on a zeppelin, right? So one of the technologies in this world that's a minor technology is they have these zeppelins that um, don't they don't direct themselves. They don't use any energy to push the zeppelin in one direction or another. They just go wherever the wind blows. Right. That's a sort of philosophical idea that's uh, similar to the walk away thing. And one time they're riding on a Zeppelin and they say, like, well, if old man climate change, you know, throws us any unexpected weather events or something. Oh, screwed. right. I remember that. And there's yeah. just a couple of not, um, times like they say Cape Canaveral is a scuba site, which is a climate change reference. And they say um, there's, a, there's just a few times when they say basically that Canada, which is the main setting of most of the story. Uh, Dr. O, the author, is Canadian. Um like all science fiction authors are, I guess. Uh, uh, and uh, they, there's a couple of times when they say things that indicate that Canada is pretty warm these days, which I think is also a climate change uh, related thing. Yeah, not unlike the way it was handled in Autonomous. It's yeah. kind of like in the, ever present in the background, obviously influencing the way things are playing out. But, yeah. Uh, I guess it is mentioned those few times, but like certainly not discussed a lot directly. Which I appreciate, and I, I obviously think this is something that must be on Cory Doctorow's mind. Um, if you look at his uh, acknowledgments in the back, yeah, um, he mentions three books in particular that influenced this book. One of which is uh, Thomas Piketty's book *Capital in the 21st Century*, which we right. did a review of way back, actually. Yes. So if if you're a new listener, you may want to go check that out. Yeah, if you want to hear um, me tell you everything that's in that 700-page book, there's two podcast episodes about it in our archive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, <laughs> and, the, and the influence of that is pretty obvious. I mean, we, again, we have the, these tremendously wealthy people. It assumes yeah. inequality just marches forward, un, you know, unstopped. Yeah, he um, literally says, like, the rich guy's money makes 10% a year, which is like a which is like a Piketty idea. I mean, there's like a couple of references right. directly to it in the book. Yeah. 
But one of the other books that he mentions, which I haven't read, but I know a little bit about, mm. uh, which is relevant to climate change and to the book's thesis in general, is uh, A Paradise Built in Hell by Rebecca Solnit. Right. Which is sort of a nonfiction history book about five famous catastrophes. Um. I, I want to say Katrina's thrown in there and maybe uh, the San Francisco earthquake. Uh, and it, um, again, I haven't read it, so I'm just going to like sort of paraphrase what I've heard about it. Mm -hmm. But, uh, apparently that book sort of shows the fact that, you know, when a catastrophe happens, the vast majority of people respond well, Mm -hmm. right? They like, they're altruistic, they help each other, they come together. And that what usually mucks things up is what they call elite panic, (laughs) Right is basically the the rich people worried about the poor people freaking out, worried about the poor people rioting, and so they, like, preemptively send in, you know, the cops and and so on to keep order, and that's actually what ruins everything. Right. Um, It it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, right, where it's like if you assume the worst of human nature, that's exactly what you get. And I feel like that theme is, like, strong in this book. Yeah, yeah. Um, And, like, the way that interacts with climate change is, is obvious, right? I mean, if this, if, you know... Uh, I, I mean, climate change, I think, has a pretty good chance of not, you know, ending all life on the planet, but it's certainly going to be a tremendously terrible disruption accompanied by many catastrophes. And it's going to, a lot of it's going to be defined by like how people respond, right? Yeah. I mean, do we, do we respond to it in a, in a humane way that like facilitates, you know, you know, the peaceful movement of people where necessary and, 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 you know, restructuring society where necessary and geography and so on. Uh, or is it going to be dominated by this sort of, you know, more of like scarcity based mindset, this sort of elite panic that says, uh, well, you know what, if the, uh, if the tides are rising, uh, we, we, I better take care of myself. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and, and screw everybody else and like, you know, huddle down in my own personal bunker, um, so I, I feel like that's like a big, or I guess what you call like eco-fascism these days, right? <laughs> this is like, have you heard this term? Yeah. Um, which is like, and, and it, it does sort of seem like that is where like the right wing is gonna, is, is about to end up. Right. Cause at, at some point, uh, the climate change denial doesn't work anymore. Yeah. And then you just skip, you just skip right to the next step, which is okay, fine. Climate change is real, but, uh, that just means it's going to be a hellscape and everyone's out for themselves now. Yeah. So yeah. And I'm going to take uh, we can't afford good to help anyone. Right. You know? Yeah. Well, and what I'm reminded of as you're describing that is that it's a societal scale prisoner's dilemma, right? It's another yes. situation where if we all cooperate, it works fine. Uh, I mean, look, there's going to be destruction and there's going to be changes, but changes are part of, uh, part of the world. They're part of life. Um, as long as the changes are managed, uh, they can be positive. Uh, and, uh, the, if we just all defect, then we'll get the worst possible world. And it seems like the default world, you know, uh, is kind of like that elite panic. They keep assuming that, uh, the walkways are terrorists or otherwise out to destroy them when actually they just don't want anything to do with them. Uh, but they can't really get that through their heads because they're, uh, they're, Richness just makes them too egotistical to think that anybody could just, you know, not give a shit about them. And uh, they end up basically attacking it. And ultimately that comes back and, and, and haunts them. They, it's not really dramatized in the book, but there's an indication that there's a big like civil war between the, um, uh, 
between the rich uh, in the interim 14 years that ends up basically turning the tides toward the walkaways. So, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting uh, sort of uh, Matroska doll that he builds here where everything is a kind of macro or micro scale prisoner's dilemma up and down. And you kind of see the benefits of cooperation uh, in this book. Yeah, no, I think that's really well said. I think that's exactly the, the case. Uh, you know, something else that uh, doesn't play a very large role in the novel, uh, which is odd considering it's Cory Doctorow who wrote it, but it, it's there in the background is, is intellectual property. Yeah, um, it's, in, it's in there a little. I mean, it, the implication is that the walkaways are clearly violating, you know, people's intellectual property, right? Uh, or at least like they plausibly are right. Um, that somebody has claims to patents on, you know, many of the technologies they're using to build their little automated socialist communes. Right. Right. And um, the, the original excuse for getting our mainish characters, uh, into walkaway in the first place was essentially, uh, an intellectual property based dispute. Was it not? It's, uh, she's stealing the, the Muji bed patent or whatever, for that communist party that starts the book off. And well, it's also, that it's also to, other things that leads to them attacking them, uh, which leads to her friend dying and stuff. But the, it seems like the proximate, like the main cause, the first cause of all the trouble that, that the main characters get into that leads them to walk away is, uh, based in a kind of intellectual property dispute. I mean, it's it. Well, it, that one was more than intellectual property though, because what, what they do in that communist party is they break into an abandoned factory yeah. that's like non-viable economically anymore, but right. still has, you know, working machines. And it's an automated uh, factory. So it's not a factory that could employ anyone. It's just a factory that could be spinning out beds. Right. And it's got what they call feedstock, which is sort of the generic, you know, stuff you feed into the printers uh, lying around. And so they throw a party in this like abandoned factory while also, you know, printing up free stuff for everybody. Uh, which is, I mean... That would just be called straight up, you know, that of trespassing and theft, right? I mean, that doesn't even need to be an intellectual property violation uh, to be against the law. By right, it's a it's a property right? violation as well. Yeah, it's both. I mean, they're I guess it's they, both. Yeah, they come after her for their patents as well as for the uh, physical access to the space and all that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I guess what I'm saying is the role it seems to, and and maybe this is pretty realistic actually. The role that intellectual property seems to play in the book is another pretext for the rich to attack the walkaways when they feel like it. Yeah, right? that's right. Along with terrorism and whatever else is on that list, right? Uh, they can just claim intellectual property whenever they want. So in that case, maybe it's a bit like the drug war. It's like we can always like plant some coke on you right. <laughs> so that we can arrest you if we need to. Right. But right. Uh, we're in the meantime, we're going to, you know, like not, like it's impossible to to thoroughly prosecute like every drug violation or every intellectual property violation in this case. Yeah. And it kind of gives us a useful lever, right? To mess with you when we want to mess with you. I guess that's maybe actually pretty realistic. Yeah, I think that's um, right. And it is uh, shown that like the walkaway culture is embracing uh, an open source uh, 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 philosophy. They share all their um, repositories with everybody, including with the default world. And then they mention that the default world steals a lot of their ideas and instantiates them, but doesn't give back. Um, so it's very much like the open source and closed source world now, basically very much like the way it works now, which is that, you know, you have people who 
work on the Linux kernel or something, and then you have people who absorb uh, some of those innovations into their work, and uh, despite efforts to police it, it can't totally be policed. Right. I guess there. Uh, it implies, though, that there was... Because I would feel like as walkaway culture is forming, there would be some critical early moment that I presumably would have happened before this book even started, right? Yeah, or in Where that flashback, uh, that you know, that one flashback to the first B and B or something, or something like that. Is that right? Or, I, don't, I don't know. There's one flashback where it seems like it's more like early days of walkaway. Yeah, but some some early moment where it's just getting started. Yeah, and uh, it's 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 not immediately stamped out. Right. Whereas it could have been right. Because right? they, they could have, you know, wielded the sort of like intellectual property club early on to sort of put a stop to it, um, especially with the broad surveillance that they have, which is that is not like today. I mean, today, the reason that they don't stamp out all intellectual property violations is they don't quite have, you know, the surveillance in place to do that perfectly. I mean, they also probably don't have buy in from the culture to do it. I, I'm sure that's a factor, too. But it does seem like, at least in this world, there would have been like a like some period there where this new culture is forming. Uh, it becomes big enough to notice it, and it's pretty easy to pin these violations on them. And you could pretty much put a stop to it right then. But for whatever reason, that didn't happen. Right. And then it sort of becomes baked in in this like way where it's almost treated like an like. Like, well, I mean, one of the reasons they give for, like, the, the super rich keep allowing the walkaways to continue to exist is it becomes, like, R&D, right? Like, which you were just hinting at a second ago, right? It becomes, like, uh, I, I, I don't know. I guess what I'm getting at here is, like, it's not entirely... I would love to know a little bit more about why they are allowed to exist as much as they are. Right, right. right? I mean, they, they, they throw out some of the possible reasons in the novel, Um but I feel like that is an interesting question if we're thinking about, you know, how this would actually play out. Yeah. Well, it's one question that I think uh, Autonomous answers more definitively and better. Um, and this is interesting to compare these two books because I think they have certain uh, superficial elements in common, but they're actually really different. Yeah. No, I think uh, they have a lot of similar themes, but uh, they feel very different. Yeah. Well, they're um, both, they both have this like bunker kind of um, setting where... Uh, a small band of pirates is sort of being chased around the globe or the country uh, by uh, a technologically superior kind of fascistic hyper-capitalist force. Um, but they also have a lot of differences. And I think, um, yeah, it's really interesting to see how these two people who both uh, have like Electronic Frontier Foundation backgrounds and are very steeped in the kind of, you know, hacker culture of the 90s and the... Um, you know, open source culture, how they approach um, speculative work about a, yeah, kind of like similar near future time where AI's gotten better and the environment's gotten worse and where the society has continued to bifurcate. But they actually do come out with, I think, pretty different visions of how everything goes. Yeah. I mean, again, the focus on this novel really is, you know, stuff being, uh, you know, Fungible. Going digital in a sense, right? Or, yeah. or like being dematerialized. Yeah. And actually, like this is a smaller point, but something that I that I like about the book is um, that term schlepper. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so this is like sort of a derogatory term that you throw around, especially at people who are like noobs, like showing up to to the walkaway world for the first time. Yeah. They inevitably like they're leaving their old life, so they like 
stuff, you know, bags with everything they think they're going to need. Yeah. Uh, and of course, like the true life of a walkway is you don't really need anything. You just print w- or borrow whatever you need as you need it. Right. 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 Um, and I like that because I think that feels like something that we're already we're already in that trend line in some ways. Yeah, for right? sure. Yeah. Like the um, whole minimalism like, thing is a little bit like trying to schlep less. I just also yeah. like the use of the Yiddish there. You know, it's a good word. Well, it's a good choice of word for that. It's funny. Yeah. And like, yeah, I mean, already now when I travel, I feel like I can travel with a lot less uh, than I used to. And like, like, I mean, we're mostly talking about stuff that like made it into the cloud. So it's not like literally clothes. But yeah, I could I could see a, a relatively near future where it would not make sense to pack most clothes. Right. Because like the hotel would have a printer where you would just borrow clothes and then like throw them back in some hamper that recycles them or something sure um so i don't know i thought that was that was interesting yeah uh i don't know i think that covers like most of the like big ideas in the book yeah we haven't i don't think we need to go into every little detail i mean people should read the book it's full of great random weird little world building ideas uh doctor is great at that he's been doing these kind of books for a long time and this book feels like it sits in the universe that he's already uh, developed. It uses some technological ideas and some jargon that I've seen in other books of his. Uh, one thing that's kind of cool is it's a little bit of a origin story for some of the ideas oh, right, right. that are in some of his books. Um, like if you ever read uh, Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, his first book, that one has these ad hoc committees that run everything and this idea of ad hocracy, like a kind of... Um, self-organizing anarchistic way of running things and that has a little origin moment in this book and um, that's also like a super uh like stats based world right that is yes that's a super like meritocratic uh disneyland or disney world rather in that in that book which is frowned upon in by most of the characters in this book as we sort of touched on right Right. but it is seen Uh, as a different philosophical uh, strand that's in the world so you could imagine that maybe those are the people who took over disney world um people like uh that one character who takes over the the b&b at the beginning and then gets an interesting sort of um uh, uh resurrection gets murdered in the snow right? he is murdered in the snow yeah but before that his character is redeemed and then he's murdered sure. in the snow <laughs> yeah um, yeah, in, in classic fictional fashion yeah yeah actually that was a cool scene i enjoyed that um but yeah, that's something that's in here. Uh, uh, the idea of deadheading, which is a jargon that he's used before, which is um, what he calls cryogenic sleep, basically uh, going into um, suspended animation in order to see what's coming next. Um, which... Oh, and should we talk about how that was like sort of an unexplored plot point? Because yeah, sure. Uh, so at, when they're whole, at one point when the walkways are holed up in this bunker. And they know they're and and they're just discovering unlocking the ability to emulate minds, which right. is something that the super rich are are very interested in potentially stopping or taking from them. Right. Uh, and and the rich are outside their door, like two like mercenaries that are hired by the super rich, like come in, presumably to take over the the walkaway facility or to kill them all or who knows what. Right. Uh, and they've set booby traps, so they pretty easily capture the mercenaries and then they don't know what to do with them right it's like a wartime situation right where you could keep them you could either capture or kill them or let them go i suppose right they well they're arguing this- about either killing them or letting them go those are the two options uh, that they're initially arguing over but then they realize they have a third option 
Right. And the third option in this case is is deadheading them, right? right? Is like sort of putting them into this kind of like cryo sleep that it's like, I guess there's been some trials with animals where they've been able to put things under and revive them. So right. there's some very minimal proof of concept, but that does, isn't 100% and doesn't fully apply to humans. Right. So it's like kind of condemning them, but then they also have this scanning technology. So they also scan them. Yes. So they back um, them up and then they deadhead them with no certainty that they can be revived. And one of the characters uh, helpfully calls them Mangala <laughs> during this discussion as to whether that's a good idea and points out that, you know, uh, doing medical experiments on your war prisoners is generally a frowned upon practice. Uh, yeah, I really liked this part of the book. Yeah, because one of the characters has this like philosophical position that like actually it would be better to just kill them yeah. <laughs> than to subject them involuntarily to this weird experiment. Yeah. Which uh, I can see either side of that argument, but it's definitely an interesting position to have. Mm -hmm. And And there's also this sense of like, Oh, are they doing something that will be looked on in the future? Like, because this is a momentous occasion, right? This is the day they defeated death. This is maybe, and like everything is logged and recorded and surveilled in this world. You know, are they going to be put on trial as war criminals for this in some future? And right. they're sort of conscious of the fact that they're living history as it's happening. It's a really interesting moment, but then it doesn't go anywhere in the book at yeah. all. It's just dropped. And then there's like a little hand wave at the end where they say something about, you know, basically these these guys were eventually killed and nothing interesting ever came of it. Um, but it, yeah, that was something that I was very interested in when it happened and then kind of disappointed in the way it went in the book. Um, because that is such an interesting, I guess he just wanted to have the philosophical argument. I guess that's the only reason it's there for, for Dr. O, but I was hoping that it was going to be more of a, um, maybe something that would turn the public against them or that would get used by the propagandists to turn the public against them or something like that. Um, for the plot. Well, may well, maybe that segues into our sort of final like critique of the book, right? Sure. Uh, which is, you know, I mean, we can give it a grade if we want. Um, I'd probably give this novel, you know, maybe a, maybe a, I don't know for ideas. I'll go ahead and give it an A, right? If we, if we want to split those things, sure. but it, on, on story and plot and character, I, I give it more like a C plus or something. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, it's just not, the strength of this book. And mm -hmm. so, I mean, know that going in and I, I don't know, maybe other people will, will relate to these characters more than I did or like find some of the moments more dramatic, but I just didn't feel like, um, like we were talking earlier, right. About the situation. Like one of the major characters, uh, is, is the daughter of a, of a super, super rich, uh, you know, uh, gazillionaire or whatever person right um and at one point she gets like recaptured by her dad and put in captivity um which could be like some sort of tense moment but as you were saying earlier right she just kind of escapes and it's not like milked for any yeah like, i had a problem with just none of the drama. major characters are ever given a really hard character choice to make i mean there's it there's some heroic action and there's a lot of genuine danger from outside, a lot of exogenous genuine danger that they're in. So there's pulse pounding moments where you think they're going to die or some of them even do die. Um, but there isn't uh, like a, there wasn't for me a really great moment where uh, any of the characters that was most important, like had to make a really interesting dramatic choice. And in general, I just didn't feel like any of the characters also was like a main character, which in a, um, 
in a, some novels works. They're just ensembles and you care about everybody and it's fine. But in this book, I felt like it was a detriment. I wanted to have a little bit more of a hook with one of them. Um, just be a little bit closer to their perspective, a little bit more subjective with them. You know, it was yeah, a it's very like ba- there's, backed off book. There's like the trappings of drama, right? There's like a lot of sex and violence and arguments, but yep. there's like, it never quite locks in in that way that you want a story to lock in where you're like really with a character, like you really fully understand what they want or like the tough situation they're in. And like you said, they have to make a tough choice or something and, mm-hmm. or like, or maybe they don't have to make a tough choice, but it's like, you're really not sure if they're going to succeed at something um, where a lot's writing on it and you really understand stakes. Um, it just never feels like that weighty. Right. Right. I mean, you feel sometimes that they're not going to succeed at surviving like because their enemy is so powerful, but it also, it doesn't feel like it's really coming from them. It feels like it's kind of arbitrary. Like if the enemy pulls it off, they die. And if the enemy fails, then they live <laughs> kind of, you know, um, it, it, the characters aren't as active as I wish they were basically. And I mean, it might be like a consequence of the world structurally, right. That he's set up, mm-hmm. right. Which is like the super rich are kind of all powerful. Uh, so they are kind of like this, like, deus ex machina that really decides things right right in most cases and then like the to the extent that the walkaways can fight it the way they fight it is the most passive way possible right which is by walking away right so like where like and there's not i mean going back to the idea of of the of the daughter who's like captured by her super rich father uh you know, that felt like it was building up to one of these classic sequences where her friends are going to break her out. Right. But that's not, and that doesn't end up how it works, right? It's like, no, she breaks herself out because she gets a chance and she's just like smart. So she takes it. It's essentially what happens. Right. Which sort of may, again, actually probably makes more sense given the rules of the world than somehow her friends being able to help her. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I don't know. But the drama so, uh, of it just isn't... I mean, the one dramatic choice she's given in her escape is she could have an easier time escaping if she was willing to kidnap her sister, right? But she says, no, I'm not willing to do that, and then just does it another basically better way. <laughs> so um, it doesn't feel like a hard choice. It feels like a correct moral choice, but not that interesting of one. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, look, I've read a lot of Cory Doctorow stuff in the past. He's always, for me, like my favorite author about ideas. Like, I think he just has the all the ideas I want discussed in his books and he really manages to pull a lot of ideas into these things um, and he's consistently not my favorite author when it comes to character plot and sentence style I mean those are not things that I think he excels at uh, compared to other writers out there I mean I enjoyed reading um, Autonomous more than this book I think even though this book probably had more intellectual ideas in it that I liked. Um, but I still would recommend this book, uh, especially to our listeners, because I think it really is a great fictional way of thinking through consequences of a whole bunch of different, you know, genuinely interesting, well thought through speculative things. So even though, uh, the sex scenes in particular were not my favorite, uh, they were, Oh yeah. Yeah. I I started skipping those at a certain point. I skimmed some of them. There are a lot of them and they all have a certain schematic, um, quality to them that I didn't care for. Uh, but, um, you know, despite that, I think there is actually a a lot of, of genuine value in this book. So even though maybe, yeah, I agree. It's maybe a, 
a, a C in terms of writing and an A in terms of ideas. So maybe I'll give it a B on average. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's part of a tradition of of sci-fi books too that are you know often their ideas is really what's important about them, and I think that's totally okay. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, especially so, if you do it as well as he does. I mean, he really puts a lot of um, a lot of ideas into one book. It's definitely an accomplishment, like pulling all this together, right? Yeah. Uh, it's like, yeah, it's a very well drawn, well drawn world. The world, as in many sci fi stories, is like the true main character here. Yeah, I think that's the answer. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, right. Um, all right, well, so shall we wrap it up there? Yeah, I think we should. Um, so I want to quickly thank our editor, Marius Hugo, and uh, until next time. I'm John Perry. I'm Ted Cupper. And you've been listening to Review the Future. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>